You've been working your way through John, as I understand, and will continue working your way through John. I do appreciate this concept of working through entire books of the Bible. I know you think, oh my word, how, how, how many years can you spend in, you know, just, just be grateful you're not in Isaiah, right? Because once you get there, then it's like a five-year journey, right? Because it's 66 chapters, <laughs> so you can imagine. So, but I want to I kind of chime in here a little bit where you guys left off. Um, I talked to David last week uh, about the text and about the sermon and I was heading in one direction and he said, hey, you know, this is where we are, uh, just to let you know, in John 8, starting in 31, and we're going to talk about truth. And so I said, well, I, I, I'll just carry on with that. I'll just develop some ideas with that. So that's what we're going to do. So John 8 has an interesting uh, storyline where Jesus makes a claim earlier in the chapter that he's the light of the world. Right? You may remember this from your sermon last week. I'm the light of the world. That's a pretty bold statement to make, um, considering that the very first thing that God creates is let there be light. And then you have a man coming on the stage saying, I, <laughs> I'm the light of the world. I am, I am the personification, the incarnation of the first created thing. That's pretty awesome. We're spanning a lot of history. So if God had created light and light had been given a human form, it would have been Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a very powerful statement. He's not saying, I'm a light among lights. I'm the only true light there is, is his claim. Well, the Pharisees get all upset, you know, and they tell him his testimony's not valid. Like, sure, you can say that about yourself, but, you, you know, you really can't do that. That's like, like, that's like bragging on yourself. Like, who does that? We're not supposed to do that. But he says, my, my testimony is valid because I know who I am and I know where I'm going. Then the Pharisee, and then he, they get upset again. He says, well, according to your law, we need two witnesses. So here we go. I'm a witness and my father's my other witness. And they're just like, what are you talking about? Right? Who are you? They're asking this profound question, who are you? And he says, well, you know, if you knew my father, you'd know me. He's a reliable witness. And it goes on and on. I'm trying to set the context here because at some point in, in John 8.30, it says, even as Jesus was speaking, some of the Jews put their faith in him. So while they're having this argument, <laughs> there's people around listening to the argument and they're like, I, I believe that. I believe you. Right? In the temple is where this is happening. So even Jesus defending himself as a witness, de defining himself as being from the Father, people are believing in him. And so these are the people that Jesus is going to be talking about in this next chapter or this next text where he says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, you look at the previous verse, these are the people that were standing in the crowd saying, yes, I believe, right? And so this is what he says to those who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is perhaps a passage of scripture that we know too well. You know what I'm saying? You ever know, they, they kind of like, the first time you hear a verse, like if I were to go to Habakkuk and find some 
real rare verse and then do this powerful exegesis of it and explain it to you, be like, wow, that's amazing, right? But you've heard sermons on the truth will set you free. You quote this verse, right? And so sometimes, if we're not careful, those things kind of become detached and it becomes something that we know, like, I know that two plus two is four. Yeah, of course that's right. But we don't really delve into it. So today I, I want to kind of delve into it a little bit more um, and take this angle. Jesus says in 831, if you abide in my word, in the word. And so the first thing I want to point out is there's this really profound little word that's really important. And the word is if. <laughs> if. Right? If you, as a person who believes, if you, if me, this is an individual thing. It's like he's pointing out, okay, if you raised your hand and said you believe, then you and you and you. If you make, take the next step, because there's another step between staying in the crowd and saying, yeah, I believe what he's saying. I believe, I believe. Right? There's another step. He says, if you'll take this next step, if you... And it's conditional, and it's conditioned on us making a decision. Do you get that? That's important, okay? This is a work that God, through the Spirit, is cooperating and molding and making us. He brings us to this place. But at some point, I need to decide. Do you understand? Right? You ever been to a four-way stop? Some of you old-timers know how to do a four-way stop. And it's frustrating, isn't it? You pull up to a four-way stop and you think, I'm sorry. you know what to do, but nobody else there knows what to do. You, you, have you been, do you have those? You guys can do roundabouts, but in Bolivar, Missouri, we still have four-way stops. Roundabouts are a whole other illustration. Right? You get there and, and you want to just sit there and I just want to scream and say, Will you decide to go? And after I make that enunciation in my head, then the next phrase is, if you're not going to go, I'm going to go. And that's the moment that everybody decides to go. Have you noticed? And then there's the break, and then there's the awkward break, and then finally somebody just goes, boom, and goes. That's this word. <laughs> that's this word. We've come to a crossroads and Jesus is saying, hey, it's your turn. If you're not going to go, I'm going to go. Do you understand? He's saying it's, it's time. It's time to stop coming to these intersections in your life where I'm asking you to decide and saying, oh, I think I'll just sit here. It's not really an option. Okay. So we have to decide and this big if question, if you, conditional statement. And then Jesus says this, if you decide, make a decision, you're locked in to abiding in the word. This word abide, minete in the Greek is abide, remain, continuously holding, clinging. Right? It's the same word that Jesus used when he starts talking about if you abide in me and I abide in you. Right? We're all about saying Jesus is just with me no matter what. But that statement goes back and forth, doesn't it? 
We know that's true. But he says, if you abide in me the same way that I abide with you, are we clinging to him as desperately as we say that he's clinging to us? This is a challenge for the church. We do no longer have the luxury of being mediocre. We live in a world that is demanding that Christians either go (laughs) or don't go. We're at the crossroads culturally and Christians are at the four-way stop going, I don't know what to do, I don't know. Okay, it's time for us to make a decision about Jesus. To abide, to remain, to continue clinging to this word. Interesting word, that word, word. That's the word logos. Right, that's the same word that's in John 1 when it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And, you know, the whole, that whole amazing concept that John is now tracking through the scriptures. He's at it again. John's using the same word. If you abide in the one that's the eternal logos of God, then he's not talking here necessarily about the Bible or the things that he's saying. Right? He's talking about himself as the personification of who God is. So, then Jesus says, if this, you will do this, if you will remain in me as the Logos, then you will know the truth. And this truth will set you free. Okay? So if you abide in me, whoops, sorry. If you abide in me, then you will know the truth. And this idea of knowing here is an interesting word as well. It's not gathering information. This isn't Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The wise men came to see him. Jesus fed the 5,000. Turned the water into wine. Uh, Sermon on the Mount. All the stories of Jesus. And we're gathering information. People have been gathering information about Jesus for a long time and some of us miss the point. He's saying you need to know the truth. This word for knowledge, know, is not information gathering. This isn't Sunday school information, albeit as wonderful as that is, right? I'm not downing getting information about who Jesus is, but if you miss the point and you never experience Jesus, personally, intimately, then you've missed the point. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to get real with you here. This word know, gnosko, is the word that is used when it describes this phrase. This is all I'll say. Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. Hello? You there? Okay. That's different than saying, my wife was born on August 22nd, 1965. She's dark-headed. She's, and I could tell you wonderful things that she does, right? I could give you all kinds of data points about who she is, but that's not the same thing as me knowing her. Right? I know, in church. But you have to understand, this is the word. This is what he's saying. Don't just get information about Jesus. You have to intimately share life with him and experience him in this experiential knowledge. And knowing Jesus personally is what he's saying. 
If you abide in me as the living Logos, then you will know me as the truth, and this reality of knowing me in this way will set you free. That's the promise. And I think the fear is like somebody says, I just don't feel like I'm free. Perhaps the issue <laughs> is that you have a lot of information, but a lot of, not a lot of intimacy with Jesus. Does that make sense? Please say, do this. Good. That's right. John 14, 6. <coughs> excuse me, which you will get to. John 14, 6 and answering Thomas's question. They're on... Thursday before Jesus um, going to be crucified on Friday uh, and, 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 and uh, Judas is about to betray the Lord, right? So that last supper, they're gathering there and all the questions are lined, all the disciples are lined up asking their questions, right? And they're all failing the test miserably. Like Peter's like, I'm going to die for you. Jesus says, no, no, you're not. <laughs> Next question. You know, then Philip's like, Lord, if you could just show us the Father, then we'd all believe. He's like, Philip, are you kidding me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Next question, Thomas. <laughs> Lord, you say you're the way, but I don't know the way. Where's the way? Show us the way and we'll walk in it. Jesus says, oh, you guys are killing me. John 14, 6. Thomas, I am the way. I'm not going to show you the way. I'm not going to give you a map to the way. I am the personification. I'm standing in front of you. I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. Same thing. He is not simply handing out information about the kingdom. He is truth. Truth is a person and his name is Jesus. It's not a concept. It's a reality found in the person. Jesus Christ is truth. So in order to emphasize his identity as the truth, Jesus does something very interesting in this continuing argument with the, with the Pharisees in John 8, 42. This dialogue continues because the Pharisees are like, what do you mean setting us free? We've never been slaves to anyone. Does that not strike you as a stupid answer? Do you know who these people are? These are Jewish people, educated, and they're telling Jesus, what do you mean you're setting us free? We've never been enslaved to anyone. A casual reading of your Bible would suggest that they were slaves for 400 years and were currently under Roman occupation. Wake up, people. Wake up. If you're going to argue with Jesus, you better get your facts right. Right? They were just mad. Right? Who are you to say that we're, you know, not, that sort of thing. Then he goes on to argue with them about how, how they say, well, our father's Abraham. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. But if you really were a child of Abraham, then you would believe who I am. And you really need to take God as your father. And they're like, hey, we're not illegitimate people. We're not illegitimate sons. Oh, no, not us. We're, we're legitimate. We have father Abraham. He's like, yeah, you're not illegitimate, he says. But your father is the devil. <laughs> right? Imagine me saying that in church. Right? This is the stuff that gets people killed. Right? And eventually it does. 
And then he goes on to describe the devil. And I'm just going to describe him briefly to give you the contrast of what Jesus is saying. Look what he says in John 8, uh, 42. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, I'm not going to delve into that, but I'm, I'm setting the table for your pastoral staff to be covering this in the, in the weeks ahead. Right? You're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, and this is the other character. Right? Listen to what he says. He's a murderer from the beginning. He does not hold to the truth. He does not hold to the fact that Jesus is the word, the logos of life. He does not hold to Jesus or the things that he says. Which means that he's against all those things. Right? And he's a father of lies. Every lie that's ever been told... Every lie that we've ever believed was spawned by Satan himself. Well, that's enough of that. If we do not believe and stand as Jesus as the truth, then by default we listen to the lies of the devil. You, every single person here, is listening to somebody. You are either listening to Jesus as the truth or you're listening to Satan as the father of lies. You don't, there's no mixture of that. There's no other option. It's one or the other. Now, we don't like that. We don't like that in our, we don't like that in our churches. We don't, I don't like that because I want to find some like, well, you know, I'm 90% with Jesus. That's pretty good. That's an A. Right? But it doesn't work that way. Now, in the remainder of my time, let me just say a couple of things because I want to springboard from this conversation about truth and talk about two other things like truth. Truth is one of the transcendentals. And I'm not going to get too philosophical here, but transcendentals are the three things that we need. We all need them. We know we need them. And we need them absolutely. And we know we need them all the time. Right? And so you're like, what are those three things? Right? Well, goodness and truth and beauty are the three things that we all need. We crave it in our world. Everybody, every human being does this. God put it in place this way. We want a hundred percent of the truth. Like no one wants you to like, yeah, if you're going to have a relationship with me, let's just settle on 80-20. You tell me the truth 80% of the time and then you can lie to me 20%. Like nobody does that. We want all the truth all the time. And when I've gotten my 2,000th great truth that I believe in, I still want more. <laughs> That's how it's set up. Goodness is the same way. I don't want a mixture of good and evil. That's how my world's set up. But I crave goodness in my life. And I also crave beauty in my life. Now the reality is, is the transcendentals are hardwired into us because we are made in God's image. Genesis 1 talks about God makes us in His image. And so I'm going to try to really quickly tie this together. These three things, goodness, truth, and beauty, connect to us because we're made in the image of God.
Because God is truth, God is goodness, and God is beauty. He's all those things, and we find it in Jesus. Because Jesus is all that is true, all that is good, and all that is beautiful. And in the, in the creation, we get this. So truth connects to my ability to reason. So I am a rational being because God is rational and therefore I crave truth. He also makes me with a will. I can choose things. We spoke about that earlier, right? So I'm volitional. And this appeals for my desire for goodness. I want to choose good things. And then he also creates us um, emotional and with imagination. And this connects with my creative capacity. So human beings have heads and hands and hearts. And all these three things are working together. To We crave to know it. And all the things that these goodness, truth, and beauty do, their primary function in the world is to point to the source, right? They're not an end. You don't get to the end of beauty and go, oh, because beauty is just turning around saying, hey, you, you like what I'm doing for you? I'm drawing you in, and all I'm doing is pointing you <laughs> to the God that's beautiful, right? So that's what they are. But the fall left humanity devastated, Genesis 3, we have the recording of the disobedience of, of Adam and Eve. And the fall left us all devastated and broken. Our capacity to fully engage goodness, truth, and beauty is disordered, displaced, disoriented, and distorted. Look around. Look around. Everything that is true and good and beautiful is under attack. You don't have to look far. <laughs> Right? Listen to these things and see if it doesn't sound familiar. Satan hates truth and goodness and beauty. He hates it. So what do we say? Truth is under attack. This is the cultural thing. All truth is relative. He doesn't destroy it completely. He just distorts it and twists it to where we could say, and our culture says, hey, your truth is as good as my truth. And I said, no, I'm, stick I'm getting my truth from the Bible. And they simply say, uh, I, I, what, what's your Bible? It means nothing to me. It's all relative. That's good for you. But it's not good for me. And that's the world we live in. We live in a world that has no source of objective truth. And I'm here to declare today that because of the Word of God, Jesus is the source of objective truth. And the world hates it. Get used to it. This isn't going to get better. We've lived in the good old days where everybody likes to say, let's just tolerate one another. Remember the days of toleration when that was the word? I remember I grew up in the 80s like, oh yeah, tolerate. It's got to be the college of tolerance. Just tolerate everybody. So we tried tolerate. Now it's not enough. Now you have to celebrate. We've, we've, we've crossed the lines, right? Look at goodness. Goodness is under attack. In our schools, there are business schools that teach people the truth about um, situational ethics. You know what situational ethics is? The truth and goodness depends on the situation you're in. So whatever the greater outcome is, if you have to lie, steep, and chill to get a good outcome, you should do that. There's a great time that it might be great for you to lie. We're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't bear... No, oh, you bear false witness if it'll help your profits. If it'll get you out of a jam, right? So goodness is now situational. And beauty 
is under attack. And I'm sure all of you have heard this statement. I'll let you finish it. Beauty is in the... Well done, students. You've just swallowed a lie. And repeated it in church. That's right. Everybody, it's what everybody says because you know what the art world and everybody believes? That art is subjective. It's up to the person, the artist, to do whatever they want to and they can declare it to be whatever they want it to be. So let's not be surprised when we teach people these things and artists hang, excuse me, urinals on the wall. Don't be surprised. And I can get more graphic because the art world is an ugly world that I'm messing around in right now. It's very ugly. Okay? But, they call, but you guys, we've all heard that. <laughs> and some of us actually go, yeah, well, I just, we get confused between what we like and preference and what is actually objective. God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is the objective source of all beauty. He knows what it is. Okay? We need to return to Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Because Jesus is everything. Not just something, not just a good thing. He's everything. And everything has been brought under his authority. And if Jesus is everything, then what does that say about me? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And he can do with me as he wishes to do with me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Not striking bargains with him. If you do this, I'll do that. If you'd make this turn out for me, I promise to go to the mission field. I mean, no, no, we're not in bargaining. This is he is Lord. And he tells us what we should do and what's going to, the way things are. And that's, that's, that's harsh. Sorry. But that's true. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to set us free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way of goodness. He is the truth of all truths. And He is the life of beauty. And all that is good and true and beautiful finds its beginning, existence, and fulfillment in no other place and no other person but Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I know who I am and I know where I'm going. This is who He is. And he knows where he's going. And where he's going is to his death. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are brought back, redeemed, restored, reclaimed. We are now made right with God through Jesus. And his righteousness is given to us. We are clothed in it. And now we are also rightly related to goodness and truth and beauty that exists in our world and we create and we love and we tell the truth and we serve and we think and we create as our response to worship goodness truth and beauty draws us to the point where we accept and see the glory of God and in response to seeing him as all good and all true and all beautiful we turn in worship and say we want to proclaim his glory using the same things. When I tell the truth, it glorifies him. When I pay the price in my culture for standing on the truth, it glorifies him. When you get attacked for saying and doing the right thing, 
He says, that's glorifying to me. Well done. When we make beautiful things, it's to His honor and glory. Now, I'm, I'm a visual artist. And I've started this ministry and I do the things with the kintsugi bowls and they did some beautiful things. But right here, right here, we see pictures of the gospel. When we first started, these bowls were whole and they had a purpose and a plan. They were just exactly what the potter wanted it to be. And then a crazy man like me says, put it in a Ziploc bag and let's break it. And instantly, everybody's pouring out their pieces on the table. And it represents the fall. That's all of us. All of us. And then I worked them through a process of mending to newness. And so these bowls up here, and you should come and take a look. There's some beautiful, like this is a particularly nice one. Um, they're now mended with gold. <laughs> and this is new creation. This is who we are. We are better because we've been broken and re renewed in Jesus than if we'd have never been broken at all. So it's a beautiful testimony of the gospel and I get to travel around and talk about that. I'm just going to take a, just a few moments here. To, this painting is a painting I did. Can I, can I walk with this thing? Okay, because I want to do that. This is my expression of beauty as an artist. So when I talk about goodness, truth, and beauty, these are the things I do. This is uh, uh, called doxology. Doxology means praise. So while I was creating it in my studio, it's an act of worship for me to actually produce it. And then when I, when I display it, it's to draw our attention to who God is. Right? So I'm going to kind of go through this. It's a Trinitarian piece. So on this panel right here, we have a piece called The Veil is Torn. You can come and take a closer look. This piece is actually split right down the middle from top to bottom. Paul says that it is the body of Jesus, that we go through the veil, which is his body. <laughs> so the very body of Jesus was completely torn and tattered on our part. And so this represents the sacrifice of the Son. And you'll see the four wounds of Jesus here, the colors of the veil of the temple. If you come close, you can see that I put texture in it that makes it look like it's the woven veil in the temple. Lots of symbolism in that particular piece. The middle piece is God the Father. So the gold stands for the glory of God the Father. Then we have the crystal sea. <laughs> 24 elders surrounding the throne of God and the throne of God is a piece of 24 karat gold. Right? So that's, that's the Father's piece and you see all these little dots and surrounded by glory and praise. Everyone's singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. <laughs> right? I get goosebumps thinking about it as I did when I painted it. This is the Holy Spirit, the descending of the Holy Spirit. Right? So the spirit comes down. This little square here has 120 little individual squares representing the 120 people in the upper room who receive the Holy Spirit. And then the spirit is the poet. <laughs> He's the artist of the group. He's kind of crazy. Spirit, if you read the book of Acts, man, this spirit's everywhere doing all kinds of stuff. Speaking in tongues and doing and things that we're just like, I don't even know what to do with him. Right? And he's circular and moving and engaged all the time and it's this the glory of the Father is being expressed through his people on the earth and so this is this is the, the colors now interesting enough Trinitarian symbolism always has it um, red and yellow and blue does anyone as an artist know what those colors are primary colors don't you find that fascinating that the symbols which because from these three things everything else exists I can make any color I want to if I have red and blue and yellow. 
So that's the symbols of the Trinity. When they all come together, everything exists because of those three persons. And that's why those colors are chosen. This is a victory arch, also representing the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. And if you'll see this arch, the circle is a symbol of eternity. Where does the circle begin and where does it end? No one knows, right? And so this circle is completed through, through the end of the painting, bringing the three together in one. So that, that's, that's what I do. That's what I love to do, right? But this is an expression of beauty. Maybe it's not yours. That's great. Maybe you're a, really irrational and you love to study. Okay? Maybe you're the person that loves to serve. If you were the ladies that made the soup yesterday, well done. Right? You are serving other people. Right? Um, but let's find a way to mix and, and appreciate all the giftings in the church. Right? Because what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is to help us all to understand, man, there's a lot of truth that we need to tell people. There's a lot of good left to be done. And there's a lot of beauty that we still need to create. Okay? So I'm going to ask you in just a moment, just to bow your head, and then David's going to come in a minute. I just want to give you a chance to respond. So if you'll bow your head, and I, think it's, I think it's safe to say that I want you to take, kind of assess yourself, examine yourself, and say, you know, what is my relationship to Jesus as the truth? We really, I really hammered that home today. What is, the, what is your relationship with Jesus as, as the truth? Not the information you have, but have you yielded your life? Have you come to that crossroads and said, I'm going, I'm all in. With Jesus as the truth. Is he good? Do you find him to be good? Or do you try to create your own good in the world? Is he the most beautiful thing that you know? <laughs> or are you distracted by lesser beauties?